This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. The number of employed journalists in the United States is half what it was at peak. The number of foreign correspondents, probably even less. And newspapers are shutting down week after week. On this edition of Update One, we talk with a veteran journalist who's now the executive editor of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Indira Lakshmanan has covered campaigns and elections in this country and abroad. She reported for the Boston Globe from Bosnia, China, Afghanistan, and Latin America, and still writes a foreign affairs column for the Globe. For eight years, she was diplomatic correspondent for Bloomberg News, covering Hillary Clinton as presidential candidate, as well as Secretary of State. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club. Indira, everybody has heard of the Pulitzer Prizes, and journalists know the name of Joseph Pulitzer as a newspaper publisher in St. Louis and New York at the turn of the 20th century, when owning a successful newspaper was a license to print money. Tell us how the Pulitzer Center came about. Well, it was founded in 2005 by John Sawyer, who was a longtime uh, writer and bureau chief here in Washington um, for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which was that, um, you know, main paper that the Pulitzer family owned. And when they started downsizing and were selling the paper, uh, John had the idea that he had been so lucky at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to have been sent to 60 different countries to cover stories around the world much the way that I at the Boston Globe was fortunate enough to be sent to 80 different countries around the world as a foreign correspondent. Uh, And yet times were tightening. His paper was being sold. There would be no more foreign travel. And he had the the idea of setting up a nonprofit journalism and education organization that would essentially help train and help give opportunities to the next generation of journalists who had ambitions to do global news. So the center started started out as a nonprofit funded by Emily Pulitzer, um, a widow of one of the, the last owner of the um, St. Louis Post-Dispatch from the Pulitzer family. And uh, she continues her support for us today, along with many foundations. And we continue to stick to that original mission, which is supporting emerging journalists, supporting journalists of all ages and a very diverse array of journalists who do global reporting for American news organizations, many of our grantees are freelancers, but we've expanded way beyond that now to supporting local newspapers for local public service journalism and certain areas that we think are really important, like climate change, the destruction of the rainforest, and many other issues like this. Um, So that's an idea of what we do. We're one of these journalism nonprofits that steps in and helps newsrooms with a combination of financial support, editorial support as needed, data-driven journalism support, and that's the role we play in trying to keep the journalism ecosystem healthy. And even top newspapers and networks welcome this. Absolutely. Some of our biggest partners actually are the New York Times. Um, We support uh, one of their reporters, Carol Rosenberg, who's a reporter on Guantanamo. We thought that was incredibly important because there was no one who was covering Guantanamo. We supported her when she was at the Miami Herald and uh, and then helped um, when she was offered a buyout. We helped to broker her um, move to 
to the New York Times so that she'd be able to continue her reporting on that incredibly important and undercovered subject. That's the thing that ties a lot of our journalism together is are these things that are not being covered by the mainstream media? So the New York Times, the New Yorker, PBS NewsHour, these are major grantees of ours where we support a lot of their ambitious international reporting, but then also small papers like um, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel um, or the Tucson, Arizona Daily Star. Now, there are several organizations like yours supported by foundations and philanthropists. Uh, to what extent can they fill the gap left by the vanishing breed of newspapers? Well, you're right that we are trying to fill a gap, but we cannot be the same as an entire newspaper. We, for example, you know, we're not funding, um, you know, beat reporters like cop reporters or education reporters or school board reporters, which everybody needs to cover their hometowns. What we can do is we play an important role by offering news organizations resources to take whatever idea or big project, big public service journalism investigation or enterprise project that they want to do and helping them make it possible when they couldn't otherwise do it. So you're right, we're filling the gaps, but it's not like we're bringing back to life all these news organizations that have sadly gone under in the last 20 years. Isn't it ironic that some of the founders of internet media that have drain the lifeblood out of newspapers, that is, their advertising, are now donating to help save the press organization. It is true, and I think that probably at the beginning, you know, I, I would say that the original sin of all of this is that we as news organizations should not have been giving away our content for free um, when we put up digital sites. And I think that was a mistake. I respect and admire the Wall Street Journal for having said all along, we're not going to give away our content for free online. Our content has value. And if you want it, whether it's in the paper form or the digital form, you're going to have to pay for it. And other news organizations laughed and waved their hands and ignored the Wall Street Journal and sort of opened the floodgates by giving the homepages away for free, not realizing that eventually then people were going to say, well, why do I need the newspaper if I can read it online for free? It's obviously a much more complex problem than that. As you say, internet advertising, the fact that so much advertising migrated from news organizations themselves over to the platforms that end up hosting a lot of the news. And, uh, you know, that there are so many factors that have undermined um, the news business, including the cost of newsprint. And, you know, we could sit here all day just doing a discussion about what has undermined the news business. But I think you're right that then in retrospect, a lot of these platform companies and tech innovators have realized, oh my goodness, you know, we didn't actually mean to kill American journalism. That's not what we were trying to do. And so many of them are trying to give back in various ways by putting money into um, journalism nonprofits like ours to help us try to reseed um, the ground um, and try to restore what some of what was lost. And in public opinion polls, large numbers of people, if not majorities, say they don't trust our major legacy news media 
or they don't trust any source of information anymore. Is there any path you can see to restoring that trust? I've studied a lot of what you're talking about, Irv, the, the studies about public trust in media. And what I've found interesting and consistent, including in surveys that I commissioned myself, academic research um, done by a professor at um, Princeton, a professor at Dartmouth, and a professor at the University of Exeter in England when I was the Newmark Chair in Journalism ethics at the Pointer Institute prior to my job at Pulitzer Center, um, what I found was that while there is widespread distrust, but much more so um, among Republicans than among Democrats um, against the so-called mainstream national press, when you cut out the national aspect of it, when you look at local news, people across the political spectrum do still trust their local news providers, and that is across platform. So whether their local news provider is a newspaper, a magazine, or a television or radio station, people still have deep trust in local news. Why? I think if we want to study how to get national news up there, we have to think about what is local news doing right. And part of that is that the reporters at local news outlets are part of the community. They're people who everybody knows. They have kids in the schools as well. You know, they may have a spouse who's on the police force. I mean, they're people who are known to the community, whether they're a prominent columnist or a TV anchor, um, people in the community know who they are, and they're much more likely to trust their motives. Moreover, local news tends to involve sorts of news we can use, things that are important to us in our daily life, as opposed to political news coverage in national media outlets that is so often pilloried by partisans on both sides for not uh, stating things in the way that they, these partisans, see it. So I think it's a variegated and a complicated picture. It's not just that we have total distrust in news. Um, it's that there are different ways that we can bolster community engagement. And part of that is actually what we at the Pulitzer Center do. Every project that we support, we take it out into communities. We take it into K through 12 schools, into colleges, community colleges, universities, and also public forums in an effort to bring that journalist in contact with the community so that the community can understand this is the person behind the reporting. They're not a faceless byline. Um, I can ask them about their process. How did they get that story? How did they do that reporting? And in that way, through these kinds of one-on-one -on -one encounters, we're really able to bolster understanding. It's sort of, I would call it applied news literacy, bolster understanding and also bolster trust in news. Mm -hmm. Well, now that we're in the midst of a presidential campaign and you mentioned the impact of politicians who denounce the press as the enemy of their politics, uh, take us back to your experience covering campaigns. Did you find it fun, educational, or a grind? <laughs> um, all of those things. <laughs> um, you know, my background, as you know, Irv, since we worked together at Bloomberg, my background um, really is I, I started as a local reporter um, at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and then the Boston Globe and did police reporting, general assignments, special projects, and then was a foreign correspondent for the bulk of my career um, before coming to Bloomberg to become 
a national political correspondent. So that was my first experience covering national politics. And the 2008 campaign, as you well remember, was a whirlwind. And covering um, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John McCain, Mitt Romney, you know, all four of whom became nominees for their parties. It was fascinating. It was great to be on the plane, on the bus, up close and personal with all four of these candidates, getting to know them and see them interact not only with us, the press, but with ordinary people, with voters. So it was really exciting and very educational. It also was an utter grind in the sense that, you know, you basically say goodbye to your family for a year and you're on the road nonstop, you know, and I would sometimes wake up and I would say, if it's Wednesday, am I in Charlotte or am I in Dayton? Where am I today? You know, you'd wake up in an anonymous hotel room and forget where on the campaign trail you were. It was that much of a grind. Um, it also was an experience with a different kind of reporting and a different kind of audience. You know, 12 years overseas for NPR and the Boston Globe, I didn't get hate mail for writing about Afghanistan or Sri Lanka <laughs> or Colombia. And I would wake up every morning to emails um, from, you know, random readers who I didn't know, um, you know, attacking me for some story that they felt didn't reflect their views, even though I wasn't an opinion columnist, I was merely reporting the news. So that was something that I realized that national politics reporters constantly undergo, which is abuse from angry readers. And it was bad then in 2008. And now it's even worse because they get you on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. Um, and it's become sort of a kind of sport attacking the media. Um, so not just politicians at the top, uh, like the president, but all the way down, people have made it a sport to attack the media, which I think honestly is dangerous and it's not good for our democracy. You know, I know reporters can try to laugh it off, but it's very serious. Um, the First Amendment, there's a reason it's the First Amendment. Uh, I'd say it's the most important and freedom of speech and freedom of the press are key pillars of that. And you can't have a healthy democracy without a healthy free press. So I think that sometimes what we have when people attack the media is they take us for granted without realizing the muscle work and the scut work we're doing out there, following politicians, holding them accountable, um, you know, keeping track of local government actions, keeping them accountable. I mean, without journalism, let's just talk about outright corruption. And you see that in a lot of countries where there is no free press to hold people accountable. So I hope that this will change, that people will come around and realize how important we are to a healthy democracy. Um, I'll admit right now it doesn't look good, but I think it is a matter of educating people over time that if you don't have a free press, you have a rise in authoritarian belief and action and uh, no checks and balances on power. Speaking of which, uh, you're also a former Beijing correspondent. Uh, do you see a way out of the current Cold War with China? And left to its own devices, will China overwhelm Asia, if not the world? Look, that is, you know, such a good question, Irv, and so complicated. Um, I spent seven years based in Hong Kong and China. And first of all, my heart breaks every day that I see these protests in Hong Kong, which was such a peaceful city and such a real enclave of 
uh, I, I can't call it democracy because it was a colony. I came in 1997, the year that it was um, making the transition to becoming part of China again, but under this system of one country, two systems, where it was supposed to have its own rule of law, its own governance, and its own, let's say, quasi-democracy. Um, you know, certainly elected officials, at least, even if they don't get to pick the chief executive. Um, that has been a huge disappointment to see that just 20 years after the Hong Kong handover, that Beijing is not taking seriously its obligations and its international commitment that it made to essentially leave Hong Kong alone and let them decide things for themselves. And this is where this all began, Hong Kong people pushing back against tightening from Beijing. In terms of China-U.S. relationship itself, I don't know, I don't think I'd call it a Cold War, but it's definitely a trade war. And to have declared uh, China a currency manipulator, as uh, the president did this past week, as the Treasury Department did, while on the one hand it may be true, it's not the way that the U.S. government has done things for the past 23 years. I think 1996 was the last time that the U.S. government called China a currency manipulator. Sometimes you do need to do use pressure in these ways, and one thing that the president has done is he has spoken truth to power when it comes to China. But it's not enough to just speak it. You have to have a plan for how are you going to fix it? How are you going to fix the relationship and get things to be the way you want? So I think we're still in a wait and see situation over that. On this edition of Update One, we've been talking with the executive editor of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and veteran journalist Indira Lakshmanan. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club in Washington. Thank you. Thank you so much, Irv. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update the Number One Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.